today at Radio Verulam, we are once again speaking to one of your local politicians. We are speaking to Shadow Home Affairs Minister, Whip and Labour Party MP, Bambos Charalambos, to get the answers to your questions. And remember, if you've not been lucky enough to get an answer to your question this month, Bambos will be back again next month in December to be answering your questions once again. But as we move into it, Bambos, the country has gone into a second lockdown since we last spoke. So how much has life and work changed for you during this second lockdown period? Well, on, on a personal level, it's um, it, it's been a, a bit frustrating because I've not been able to um, see friends who I was able to see with previously. Um, in early October, uh, I was able to go for a, a walk and have a beer with a friend of mine from my student base from Liverpool. But now with the bars being shut um, and uh, not being able to mix with people from um, we can have the distance walk, but from other households, it's really, um, it's really difficult to social. So I've missed that side of it. Um, the um, and, and obviously, you know, um, as you know, I've managed to break the finger. I was hoping to be able to go to a gym to exercise once it'd been fixed, but clearly uh, the gyms are shut as well. So that's another uh, area that I'm sort of. Um, I think people coped uh, better with this lockdown than the first one. I think they've got the measure of what needs to be done. I think the first one was like very scary for everybody. Um, and I think because we've had the tiered approach, that's not full. Uh, Parliament-wise, um, we, we've accepted proxy voting systems. So now um, people don't have to go into the division lobbies, but I have to go to my whip because I have to um, be there sometimes to be able to count votes. Um, we were trying to extend, um, I think people might have seen Tracy Couch uh, when she said she wasn't taking part in a debate last week about breast cancer, even though she's um, self suffering from breast cancer because she wasn't participate virtually. So we were, trying, we were keen to see that extended, and not just to, to people who are shielding as well, so they can take part in debates. So that's still an ongoing thing that people are still quite excited about because it's creating a two-tier system of MPs, um, and some MPs can't come to Parliament because they're shielding uh, or have an underlying health condition. Therefore, they can't participate in debates, and that's still a big concern for some people. But I, I'm, I'm here. I come to Parliament daily. Uh, I'm, uh, we've just finished today in, in Parliament, so I'm talking to you after we've just finished our session. So I'm still coming in as normally. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's my story. Now, Bambos, I do want to bring it back onto an important point. And on top of the difficulties of COVID-19 during this period with the second lockdown, it's also been a difficult one for the Labour Party as a whole. After the EHRC's investigation, there has been found that there was political interference in anti-Semitism complaints, failure to provide adequate training to those handling anti-Semitism complaints and harassment of those as well. So Keir Starmer has given a tough message and said that recommendations would be imposed as soon as possible in the new year. He's also cemented the need to change the culture of the party and yesterday Keir explained the new system that would come into place in the new year. Please 
talk us through these new systems and, and maybe give assurances to the community of Jewish people in Britain who are still hurt by what has happened here? Okay, well, um, I'll start off by where we were before. So clearly when I was out campaigning uh, a year ago, uh, anti-Semitism was coming up on the doorstep uh, on a, a regular basis. Uh, uh, I think it was probably more remarkable when it didn't come up than, you know, when it did. Um, so clearly we had a big issue with uh, anti-Semitism or the perception of anti-Semitism um, and the fact that we weren't dealing with it uh, as we should have done. So uh, I think that that caused us uh, particular problems. Uh, the fact that we were being investigated by the EHRC was uh, uh, quite shocking for me because uh, as, you know, a third of an anti-racist uh, and you know, knowing what the Labour Party it has been like to be investigated for uh, racism is uh, just shocking. So um, uh, I think, you know, I'm pleased that we have got the report now and uh, Keir Starmer said we will implement the recommendations in fall. Uh, and I hope that goes some way to um, building bridges with the Jewish community. Um, clearly it's a start, but uh, obviously it's down to Keir and the uh, people at the top of the party to implement it. Uh, one of the key recommendations is having an independent um, panel that oversees uh, complaints. Uh, and I think that's important. So you don't have any um, uh, allegations of political interference uh, in that process. The process has to be robust and transparent. So I think that would give the process that robustness and transparency it needs. And hopefully that will go some way to restoring uh, the trust with the Jewish community, uh, but obviously there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Yes, and continuing that trend, because as you've explained, a year ago, the Labour Party were deep in an election battle to try and get elected to Parliament, and the discussions of anti-Semitism were there at the time. However, you know, linked to this, under Jeremy Corbyn, Keir Starmer worked in two prominent shadow secretarial roles and was happy to be a spokesperson of the party. He was backing Jeremy Corbyn, and in a famous interview with Andrew Marr, he twice stated that he did not accept the level of anti-Semitism claims within the party, but he did say that I do accept that as a Labour Party, we do have to root out anti-Semitism. Do you feel that this tough stance now is in contrary to his actions to be a willing minister for previous leader Jeremy Corbyn, something which fellow Labour MP Jess Phillips was quite outspoken about in January of this year. Well, I mean, let's be clear about this. I mean, Keir's role was as the uh, as the Brexit minister. So his remit was to get the position for one of the most um, important issues of veneration. So clearly that was his focus. Um, and, and, you know, all the, well, the majority of the candidates who stood for the Labour leadership did so shut up in it. I think you need that level of experience to um, show leadership and judgment and to become the leader. Um, so uh, so I very much, um, you know, I, I do think it was like, well, that was, but I think Keir Starmer said he had he had raised it at the cabinet, the issue about uh, anti-Semitism. And I think most people were absolutely, you know, beside themselves that it weren't, wasn't being dealt with um, as toughly as they would have liked in the past. So I think that has been um, an issue that's, you know, I'm sure if you go back over time, you'll see that people have raised previously. Um, you know, I think Donald was saying he was frustrated that it wasn't being dealt with 
as and you know as thoroughly as it should have. So I think I think it has been there, but obviously you have to um, look at what people are doing because there was a, a lot of work to be done at the time uh, for people in their particular roles, and so that includes Keir Starmer in his role as uh, the shadow uh, Brexit minister. But there was a number of notable cases of people actually leaving the party or resigning. If Keir had felt so strongly at the time, why wasn't he more public of his criticism of the anti-Semitism within the party? Well, I don't know what Keir said or didn't say. Um, and, um, you know, it was very upsetting that people did feel that they had to leave the party. Uh, obviously, there are things that um, neither, you know, I, I'm not privy to, so I can't really comment uh, on, you know, what Keir's thinking was at the time. Um, but, you know, it's always sad when people want to leave the party. And finally on this issue, Sir Keir said that, I know this has been another painful day for the Jewish community when speaking about Jeremy Corbyn returning to the Labour Party. He said that Jeremy Corbyn's statement in response to the EHRC report was wrong and completely distracted from a report that identified unlawful conduct in our tackling of racism within the Labour Party. This should shame us all. So does the readmittance of Jeremy Corbyn undo the message of zero tolerance? Why was he allowed back in if his actions were so hurtful and shameful? Jason, uh, I'm a whip and this is a disciplinary matter. I can't comment on individual cases. And this is obviously an ongoing case, so I'm afraid I can't comment on that. Okay, Bambos, let's move it on then to another issue, which is in the ether at the moment. It's being discussed about across the political spectrum. And on the 27th of October, I actually tweeted about this issue. The most recent YouGov poll stated that 44% of the people in this country want proportional representation, whereas only 28% would continue the first-past-the-post system that we currently have. In the 29 general election, this would have meant that the Conservatives would have only got 288 seats, so a change of 77. Labour would have got 216 seats, which would have been 14 more. And the Liberal Democrats would have got 70 seats or 59 more. Some commentators have said that the most likely way to get electoral reform is for Labour and Lib Dems to unite on this issue. Is this something that you're investigating? Well, I'm a member of the Labour campaign for electoral reform. I support proportional representation. Um, I think even before you look at, uh, you know, electoral gain, that shouldn't be starting on. You need to start on with that it. it's just error because uh, if you look at the way our election system is structured, the, the votes in relatively few seats determine the outcome of general elections. There are some seats that uh, will always vote Conservative. So if you're a Labour member in those seats or a Lib Dem, but then your votes won't count. Um, there are also people who are in Labour seats, uh, uh, you know, rock solid Labour seats, where again, if you vote for other parties, vote won't count. Um, so I think it's it's about a fairer, a fairer system that she um, does produce the majority of does make sure the majority of votes are counted properly. So I, I do believe in uh, PR, uh, all I've done, uh, I've spoken on platforms uh, about it, uh, and I hope it does reach that position where we, uh, that is one of our policy 
uh, objectives that we have proportional representation uh, for the parliament systems. I mean, it's, it's crazy that we have, you know, the, the Greater London Assembly selected via PR, you've got the Welsh Assembly, you've got some Scotland, um, you've got uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland. So they, they have a form to elect all those um, parts of, um, uh, of, of the nations, but uh, we don't um, in the UK. So um, I think it's, I think we'll come eventually, but it just seems to be odd that we are operating some that uh, is finding another part of the United Kingdom and not in, not in the, for the UK Parliament. So let's move the discussions on to what the local community wants to hear. As always with these discussions, Radio Verulam is here to help the community. And we called for questions for you, Bambos. So let's move it on to what the people of the area want to know. So the first one actually comes from Callum. And he's talked about Diane Abbott, Kate Osmore and Bell Ribeiro Addy are all MPs from the Labour Party, but they've appeared in meetings this month with people denying the mistreatment of Uyghur Muslims in China. Is this something that the Labour Party condemns? Um, it's quite clear that the Uyghur Muslims have been uh, treated appallingly in China and we need to uh, speak out their rights. Uh, I know that uh, my colleague Stephen Kinnock has spoken at the dispatch box about this and about more needing to be done to make sure that uh, their rights are uh, protected. Um, so I do think that we need to um, make every effort to ensure that human rights are respected uh, internationally. And in fact, just this morning, I had a question to um, the, uh, was going to be to Liz Trust, but one of her other ministers responded about human rights in trade deals, because I think we need to make sure that uh, after Brexit, when we are um, trading with other countries, they need to have respect for human rights. Uh, and that, that has to be you know, front and centre any trade deals that we have with them. So um, clearly it, it, it is um, quite shocking what's happened to the Uyghurs um, in China. Uh, and uh, I very much uh, hope that um, we speaking out loudly and clearly for their rights. Andy, in the next question, has moved on the topic of discussion onto a recent bit of legislation that has been passed. And he explains his belief that torture has been illegal in the UK for over three centuries, but the Labour Party has backed the Overseas Operation Bill in September, which would allow for it, and sacked three MPs over legislation. So now it seems the party has changed tack this month. Why has the Labour Party struggled to take a position on such a heinous piece of legislation? Those are Andy's beliefs there, Bambos. Uh, do you mind opening out the discussion on this? Well, I, just to correct something, I mean, the um, I think the we did actually vote against the overseas operations or, uh, and I think it didn't deal with um, torture so much. I think that might be the the Chis bill, but the overseas operation bill. I mean, just to give you an idea about the position, bills have different uh, stages. So obviously, second reading is principle of the bill. Uh, and at that stage, we decided to uh, abstain uh, because we thought the bill was uh, wrong and needed to be amended. So when it went to the committee, which is the next stage, I think we were quite keen for uh, various amendments to be taken at committee. Uh, when it was quite clear they weren't taken, um, then um, we ended up um, deciding to vote against the bill. 
because we thought it was uh, a bad bill um, because what it did was it actually gave the MOD uh, a fair bit of um, strength and it made um, made it harder for people to sue the uh, Ministry of Defence. Um, so it actually weakened uh, uh, people's rights, including those of some soldiers. Um, so it, it did seem to be um, a very strange piece of uh, legislation that we couldn't support. Uh, I think the bit you're referring to is the Covert Human Intelligence uh, Sources uh, Bill, which um, we did vote against um, at, um, I think it was at the third reading. Um, this was really complicated. I mean, first of all, just to deal with the issue of torture. Um, torture uh, wasn't explicitly prohibited from the bill because the bill referenced the Human Rights Act. So in under the bill, the covert human intelligence sources, um, people were, who were undercover, um, they would be allowed to uh, commit um, crime uh, if it breached uh, human rights. And they had to get uh, various approvals. Now, um, one of the reasons why we thought on reflection, we were unhappy with the bill because it, it didn't provide sufficient safeguards, but also it didn't provide, um, it, it needed to provide a regulatory footing, which uh, didn't exist before. So all the uh, under the, um, people were working under very uh, secretive policies that weren't transparent. So we actually welcomed the fact they were now going to be, there's going to be greater transparency, but it didn't far enough for us. So I think the issue about um, uh, torture was, because it was already going to be explicit in the Human Rights Act, um, we felt that uh, that would, it, it was covered uh, by, in any event, we want greater clarity and that's why we ended up abstaining, but we wouldn't vote against it completely. Um, and so people took a different view. And clearly if you're a front bencher, you disobey the whip, then you have to resign. Just to continue that discussion a little bit more there, Bambos, and, and maybe to fully explain so that Andy and, and other people understand the, the methodology behind this, but why would the Labour Party not vote against something that they didn't believe in rather than abstaining? Is this something that a layperson in the world of politics wouldn't understand? Sometimes you might agree with certain aspects of something. Um, but you may disagree with other aspects of it. So, um, you know, it's it's not always, um, you know, you might be happy with the principle of something, but, you know, the actual content is something that you think is flawed. And I think that's what happened with this particular bill. Um, I mean, the, you know, if, if there wasn't regulatory footing, then these COVID human intelligence sources would be operating under policies that Parliament wouldn't, um, be scrutinising. So I think there's, I think there is that aspect of it, which is why we felt we couldn't oppose it. Because then you're saying, okay, so you're quite happy for people to be operating under secret policy, and that clearly isn't where you know I want to be. So you, you sometimes look things, um, you know, in the round actually say, on reflection, uh, I don't want to vote because there are things in it that I like or that I can support. But I can't vote for it because I still think it's um, it's imperfect and flawed. And I think that's where we were with this bill. On the topic of governmental accountability, Richard has actually asked a similar question along those lines there, Bambos. And he's actually put to you, the government 
has been keeping the details of four billion pounds worth of COVID contracts with private firms secrets. Richard has also said, why is this and will you call them out for this, Bambos? Um, 100%. Uh, I think, firstly, why are they being kept secret? Um, government have been um, um, very sneaky, so they've been using the uh, coronavirus legislation to try and um, uh, override the more scrutiny that um, procurement contracts would attract. And so what we've seen is that um, various contracts have been given to people who uh, have links to the Tory party um, and um, and often they fail to deliver goods, uh, quite literally in some cases. Um, so we've seen contracts for um, PPE equipment that um, wasn't fit for purpose, for uh, test and trace that, again, uh, wasn't um, suitable. We've seen uh, over £20 million go to a middleman who was uh, a go-between for certain companies. Um, and these people could all be traced back to having links to the Tory party. There was a report that was published this week by the National Audit Office, and at PMQs this week, uh, Istama um, made a, a direct uh, attack on Boris Johnson about this from the dispatch box. So it's something that uh, we're very, very uh, keen to focus on and to the government on, because it's public money that is being wasted, that's being given away as uh, backhanders to um, people that have got um you know tory cronies basically um and uh, we've got that that's got no place uh, in our parliament they should come to scrutiny and certainly both must and other colleagues will be holding government to account on these things now we move on to a much more local issue and something that does indeed affect your local constituency of Southgate, Enfield and North London in many areas because Caroline has pointed out that local Labour governments across London have been promoting for people to cycle and in Enfield itself the council has undertaken the creation of many miles of cycle lanes. However, what action will be taken to ensure that cyclists take on responsibility for their actions? That is when can we expect cyclists to be required to wear helmets, register their cycles, secure insurance and cycle only where they are permitted? Caroline has voiced her opinion that accidents caused by cycles will undoubtedly increase. Registration and insurance will ensure that the injured can claim recompense for their injuries. Helmets reduce the costs to the NHS. And, you know, there's a lot of problems that she's pointed out there in, in a very lengthy but useful email there to, to point out maybe hers and some other residents' concerns there. So, Bambos, is there going to be any kind of local government rulings, legislation on the issues of cyclists affecting not just themselves but others in their actions? Um, well, I don't know about legislation because local authorities can only pass uh, bylaws. Uh, on certain things, and I think what um, Caroline's question is about is about national legislation. Um, uh, I do think that obviously cyclists are governed by the Highway Code, uh, and they should obey the Highway Code. Clearly, there are penalties for them uh, if they disobey. It. So, um, you know, if people are cycling on pavements, if they're putting pedestrians at risk, um, if they're driving recklessly, if they're cycling recklessly uh, on road, again, that's um, something they can be uh, uh, pulled up on and um, penalised for. Um, 
obviously with anything um, like this, you need to make sure that you have people who can enforce these measures. So you need to have um, you need to have sufficient number of uh, police officers on our streets. So it's pleased that we've got more police coming. Um, that's nowhere near to the levels that they were before 2010. But, but it needs to, you need some degree of enforcement there. Uh, I think everyone should have the highway code. If they did, then uh, it would be, well, be a far better place. But at the moment, um, as far as I'm aware, licensing and uh, being required to wear a helmet are um, not compulsory. Uh, and I'm not aware of uh, any legislation that's um, going to be required to do so. Though clearly wearing a helmet um, uh, is a very good idea because if you do have an accident, then it could save your life. So I'd encourage any cyclist to you know, make sure they are well protected when they're cycling. Now, as we move towards a more greener and eco-friendly society, as society changes its habits to meet those 2030 targets, obviously, at the moment, Labour are not in power. Uh, but when we get closer to election time, will issues like this about the environment be cornerstones of manifesto and election pledges? Uh, very much so. I mean, I think we uh, we had a, a fantastic uh, uh, for you know a green revolution at the last general election. Um, so uh, you know that we very much want to see um, green jobs being created. We need to look at sort of retrofitting home. We need to expand on um, uh, renewable energy. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, we look at. Um, um, cars that are more environmentally friendly um so yeah i think it's uh, i think you know we need to look at carbon capture but there's a whole series of things that we need to make sure the focus is on um and that it, it just glib pronouncements um uh, you you do need to look at how the um you know how things are measured as well so at the moment with co2 emissions they don't measure uh, aviation or um, transportation of goods, so that's an issue that needs to be considered as well. Uh, so there's, yeah, I'm, you know, we've heard words from the government, so we need to see whether these uh, words ha have actions and result in uh, change. We definitely want to make sure that we're one of the group's greenest governments ever when we come into uh, Parliament. Stefanos and Paul have continued the discussions to have a local focus because they actually express disappointment in your contribution to the low traffic neighborhoods debate, which they said was limited to you just stating that isn't it central government's fault for poor consultation. Both have asked how this scheme, which is council piloted and run, can be the blame of central government. Bambos, could you explain your comments and, and maybe why it is or it is not the fault of those in power at the central government level? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, the when you have an adjournment debate, um, I'm not sure that uh, Paul and Stanos um, understand the, um, the way the Parliament works, but when you have an adjournment debate, have one person who has the debate at the end of the day, they get 15 minutes and anyone else uh, can only contribute via uh, intervening on those uh, people. And then the minister gets 15 minutes and they're the only two people that have the right to, to speak uh, unless the debate goes on for long 15 minutes. Um, 
So clearly I'm talking about the Bose um, traffic neighbourhood scheme and one of the concerns that residents raised with me was that this money that had come directly from the government and was conditional on the scheme being implemented within such a tight window limited the amount of time that people have to um, be consulted on. And clearly that was a specification by the government. That was why I was raising that particular issue because residents had raised it with me. So um, so that was uh, an issue that I felt strongly enough to raise uh, and it's an issue that I will be uh, speaking to one of the ministers about because I do think that people need to be properly consulted um, and especially when the government are funding the schemes and the government are making the specifications for uh, consultations as they, as they did. You know, on this, uh, along the lines of Stefanos's and Paul's question, is there any involvement with local councils then? Is all the decisions made by the government here and actually their question is wrong in terms of its wording? The government gives the funding and they stipulate when the scheme has to be implemented. So if you've, um, if you've done a bid, um, then you have to implement it within that time period, which means you're limited as to um, how much pre-installation uh, in scheme you can uh, have because otherwise you'll lose the money. So I think that's part of the, um, the problem. That's something that I want to make sure is fixed for the future. So the council wants to implement the scheme and as the scheme is implemented, then the consultation is then a live process. So I think that's uh, because then people need to see. Um, so after it's been implemented, people will take part in the consultation. So hopefully there it's cleared up a local matter, a local issue. And as you said there as well, Bambush, you're going to try and personally get involved with sorting it out uh, for future streamlining of this issue. But moving it to an issue that you've alluded to a little bit earlier with the story of Tracy Crouch, uh, the MP there, Mike has brought to attention the fact that Jacob Rees-Mogg's statement about the possible changes to the parliamentary voting system under COVID may now change. However, this has come months after it was needed. Mike has asked, do you welcome this move or do you believe it is too little, too late? I think it's, uh, it is too little, too late. I mean, we did have a system where people were able to vote remotely and take part in debates remote previously. The House of Lords are operating in exactly that way now. Uh, the only person who doesn't want to do that uh, is Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, he has been really uh, critical of MPs uh, who don't come to Parliament because he's been saying that they are somehow uh, not doing their job properly, um, which uh, is uh, really... Bear in mind, some people physically cannot come to Parliament because they're either shielding or they have some underlying health condition and the health advice is to stay at home. Then um, I think that that's a, um, I think it's very wrong of him to say that. Uh, I don't think pronouncements should be made for Twitter uh, or uh, other social media. I think that, and, and this has been something that the speaker has been very keen to raise. So the speaker raised the issue um, uh, about the need to make any announcements uh, in the House first. Uh, it's very disrespectful to parliamentarians when that doesn't happen. Um, so I think he was wrong to tweet about it. I think he was uh, shamed into doing it by Tracy Crouch, um, who, as I said earlier, couldn't take part in a debate about breast cancer. 
because and she is somebody who's recovering or has undergone treatment for breast cancer uh, because Pamela uh, wasn't able to uh, set up um, a mechanism to participate in the debate. Having looked at the tweet itself from Jacob Rees-Mogg, there's no set date for when we should expect some rule changes on this parliamentary procedure. So has anything been communicated to you? Has anything been talked about, discussed, or even set in stone, but not released yet, to kind of assure people that parliamentarians, their views will be heard in this current COVID situation? Well, there, uh, there's a limited um, motion that's tabled by Jacob Rees-Mogg, but it's only limited to people who are themselves um, uh, have a, a condition that prevents from coming to Parliament, but it doesn't include people who uh, are shielding for other reasons. Um, so people still think that still create a two-tier system of um, MPs. So we want to have time to debate that. So hopefully that will come back and be debated sometime soon. Um, and I think that um, the only blockage to this is uh, Jake Smog, and I think he needs to. Um, appreciate where, you know, why MPs are so happy about uh, the situation and hopefully he'll change his mind. Uh, as I say, the House of Lords is operating perfectly well uh, under this system. Lords uh, vote virtually and they take part in this virtually as well. So I don't see any reason why it can't apply to Parliament, particularly as this is something that we were doing um, back in May. On the next question, Mary has moved the topic of discussion onto the actual site of a Guardian article which recently reported that Britain is becoming a GoFundMe nation. Uh, Mary has said there's lots of cutbacks from the Conservative government. However, if Labour were in party, if they were in power at the moment, what would be done differently, remembering the financial issues that we have? Well, it's, it's difficult to know. The next question isn't until another... Um, three or four years time. So until we get to that stage, we won't know what state the economy's going to be like. Um, but clearly there's a concern. That, so we've had, we've had years and years of cuts. Um, you know, it's been a lot of cuts since 2010. Then now uh, the budgets are at breaking point. So, um, and we've lost loads of uh, public services, police officers were cut. Um, you know, the, Things like youth services will come as well. So, you know, local authorities have suffered, suffered and suffered, um, and so have other areas of public spending. Uh, the government is now um, slowly putting some money back into certain areas, but not others. Um, so we have to see where the economy is. Uh, obviously, you have to uh, take things as you find them. So you have to then put in place just to deal with what your priorities are. So until we get to the next general election, uh, I don't know what we'll be uh, faced with and what measures we'll have to put in place to get us to where we want to, to deliver our priorities. Now, in America, we've obviously had the presidential election and there's been a lot of discussions about votes and the legality of elections. But Ian has actually asked the question to kind of bring the focus maybe onto what is happening in Britain. Uh, Ian has voiced his concern because he recently read about a Nick Cohen article also in The Guardian uh, about the worries in regards to the Conservative Party and voter suppression. Ian 
questioned the true independence of the Electoral Commission after reading Nick Cohen's Guardian article. Couple this with reluctance of the government to investigate the Russian interference. Bambos, is this something, a worry that you share? Yeah, very clearly. I mean, we haven't seen the um, we haven't seen the Russia um, reports. Um, well, actually, no. We've seen. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been sat on that you know sat on for ages and ages. Um, the you know we need to make sure things are transparent and we do have side things. Otherwise, how can we hold them to account if there's no public scrutiny? And we just simply. Um, you know, it, it, it's seen there to try and um, um, trying to suppress, you know, electors is uh, probably one of the lowest of the low that you can go to. It's trying to stop people actually having their rights to um, to choose their elected representative is, uh, you know, is appalling. And people that do that need to come to account. So I do think we need to make sure that we have um, not only um, proper scrutiny and of things, but we do have a revamp of our uh, electoral laws, particularly when it comes to the role of social media in um, the way they play in elections, um, and um, making sure that the rules that we have are better geared to tackling any issues of uh, electoral fraud for the future. What are the reasons why this Russia report has not been published? Has the government given reasons why they're holding back on this? Uh, I honestly don't know. Um, I think they, um, yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, it's um, it's something that has been asked for um, and it's something that um, it just isn't forthcoming. Uh, I mean, I know my colleagues will keep asking and um, hopefully we'll have side of it and I'm sure that uh, it will be um, quite don't just like the you know give another example where they certain things don't reveal them you know the um the report of bullying by um pretty patel again this is a report that's been done by government uh into allegations of bullying um and we've not had sight of that you know so it's you know you do why the secrecy you know we should be living in a, an open and transparent uh system of government so we need to make sure that that is um, the way that things are. One of the saddest occurrences during the last lockdown, Bambos, was the rise in domestic abuse. And this is something that Susan is worried about. She said that I saw Nick Thomas Simmons and Jess Phillips highlight the potential for another rise in domestic abuse. What is being done to protect the vulnerable people in this second lockdown that was not done last time? Well, I think the uh, the problems are still there. So I think the what you find is that many of the organisations um, who um, provide support to people um, who are facing domestic abuse, um, they're uh, under lockdown. Then they're they're not able to cope with the volume of uh, calls that they have. They're not able to deal with the number of uh, inquiries they have. So clearly, they need to be properly funded to deal with the um, um, volume of calls uh, that they get. So I think that's one particular issue. Um, also, I think that um, the, um, the police also need to be trained to uh, identify abuse and they see it and um, 
to be able to go around and uh, to um, assist people when they uh, are in that state of distress uh, have suffered abuse. So I do think that uh, maybe training needs to be carried out there uh, so to make it easy to identify. Um, I think with you know with lockdown, people are in a confined environment um, and they may not be used to that environment. It does um, it can bring out the worst of people. Um, but we do need to make sure that people uh, are protected and get the protection they need. Um, and, uh, and, and that means investing in charities and organisations that can provide the, the support and help those people uh, in that situation need. And you're speaking there of charities, organisations that can really help their Bambos. And uh, is there a possibility that you could highlight some of the help that can be found for local constituents in Southgate if they are in one of these terrible situations? I'm not sure if they're in my area uh, as such, but certainly Women's Aid and Refuge and National Charities uh, are the two that I would actually encourage people to contact. Um, they're very well regarded. Uh, and obviously, uh, um, you know, got the NSPCC children as well, because obviously children are also um, victims of domestic abuse as well. So we move into the final community question here, Bambos, and this is one to the local area of Enfield and Southgate. And Ryan has highlighted his concern that this month we saw Croydon Council go bankrupt. But Ryan has said, I'm worried that Enfield's council has two billion in debt but is this debt or is it investment? As leader of the council, Nessel Kalkiskan has said herself, is this draft instead more sustainable? Well, um, let, let's be clear about what the, just trying to, uh, obviously councils, um, they don't just go to the bank and um, borrow two billion pounds. Uh, they, they borrow money for, through the Public Works Loan Board uh, and that's particularly set up for um, for local authorities. They um, at the moment the uh, interest rates are very low, and there's a very long payback period uh, for that. So that and it's not uncommon for authorities to borrow that money. I think the issue with Credit and some other borrowers was uh, they were encouraged to invest in uh, things like property uh, and uh, other things that would have a high rate of return. Um, and they were risky-ish uh, investments, which didn't sort of generate the return they were expecting. And you know, when they suffered, um, and they were, they were exposed to losses because they were banking on getting those returns as part of their financial model. So, um, so I think that there are uh, big differences between how some councils operate and how do. But obviously, we've got to look at the backdrop of this. And the backdrop is that councils have had. Um, million pounds cut from their budgets uh, over the last 10 years, which has had an impact on uh, frontline services, um, although hopefully not as uh, much as um, was feared. That's only through the careful stewardship and management of financial services. Uh, it's always been good with its finances, but uh, I'm sure even it's struggling, particularly with COVID, because I think COVID has thrown everybody um, you know, it's thrown them sideways. And I think that um, there is going to be, you know, things like parking lodges. Um, there was a period when they weren't being pitted. Uh, there was other sort of uh, um, revenue generating schemes. So that's left a black hole. Some councils that's 
and quite worrying. Um, but we do need to have more investment now, local authorities and um, public sector. And I do need, to, you know, I do hope that we see that coming soon. So I'll certainly be supporting any measure that bring more money into Enfield uh, at uh, local authorities nationally. Now, to end on something a little light-hearted, a little bit positive, and something hopefully we can all look forward to and maybe a slightly less locked-down situation. But at the start, you did tell us that your finger had been broken last time we chatted. So I'm hoping it's all healed now because Christmas is coming round the corner. And I do have to ask, what is your role in the Cheryl Ambos household? What is your Christmas kind of uh, gift that you can give to your family in terms of abilities? Is it cooking or is it elsewhere in the house? And in terms of it also, will you be shopping local and supporting the great local businesses in and around the Southgate Enfield area? Well, um, okay, first of all, well, hopefully my finger will be um, will be healed uh, by Christmas. So um, the, um, my, my strapping will come off next week, hopefully. Um, and then I'm doing some exercises to make sure the tens are working okay. Um, so yeah, hopefully I'll be doing some um, uh, Christmas shopping um, so to any sort of lockdown measures or other things that we have to. Um, and yeah, I think everybody should be celebrating Christmas uh, and um, festivities as much as they can. But we all need to make sure that we keep safe and that uh, everyone, um, um, you know, is still considerate because we're, you know, even though the vaccines come on uh, and, and looks like there will be a vaccine for next year, we're not there yet and we still need to make sure that we uh, protect ourselves against the virus. But I still hope that people are able to enjoy Christmas. Uh, I'll certainly be very happy to have a bit of a rest. So I want to wish everyone. Uh, a very happy Christmas and uh, New Year, and hopefully 2021 will be far better than 2020 has been. But in terms of your specific role within the, the Cheryl Ambos household on Christmas Day or in the build-up, are, are you chef or are you chief decorator? What what kind of things do you do, Bambos? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm probably best kept out of the kitchen, so decorating is my thing. <laughs> well, thank you once again, Bambos, for your time today. And I hope that the community feel like their questions have been answered. And you'll be back again next month in December to have a pre-Christmas chat with me, building up into hopefully a positive future in 2021. that we have a good recovery next year and that we're back to prosperity sometime soon and that people uh, are able to enjoy social with friends, family um, and, you know, into 2021. So that's, that's where it happens. And will you be watching the football as well? Because I know you're a keen football fan. Will you be hoping for some results for your team as well? Absolutely. So, yeah, hopefully I'll be able to get down to Stamford Bridge and watch uh, Chelsea at some stage physically if I'm just on TV. <laughs>